Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is Nerdette. This is our year-end special roundup of things we love. Because this is airing both on our hometown station, WBEZ Chicago, and on the internet, a bit of business. Nerdette is a podcast. A what? A podcast. It's a show where everyone is a little nerdy about something. We talk to people of all walks of life about their obsessions. Authors, astronauts. Nerds. Nerds of all stripes. (laughs) Now, even if you're a Nerdette fan, even if you've been with us for the past three years, this show will sound a little different than it normally does. In the next hour, we're going to talk about the year's best podcast from two women who know what's what. <laughs> Lauren Ober from WAMU and host of NPR's The Big Listen and Brittany Luce from Gimlet, the podcast network that brings you shows like Startup and Reply All. Plus, author Margot Lee Shetterly shines a spotlight on some of the hidden figures of American history, the black women who helped get Americans into space using their mad math skills. But first, you might know Andy Cohen as the guy who sits on the couch with all the real housewives. Okay, you guys. Everybody talk at once. You You might know Andy Cohen from his Bravo talk show, Watch What Happens Live. Or you might know him because of his more unofficial title. Anderson Cooper's very best friend. (laughs) What you might not know about Andy Cohen is that he has actually been a pretty rigorous journal keeper for the last couple of years. And he's publishing these diaries. He published the first one in 2014, and the new one is called Superficial. More from the Andy Cohen diaries. And this diary is filled with stories about famous people and fabulous events. It's inspired by Andy Warhol's diaries, the famous pop art icon who wrote stories about lifestyles of the rich and famous. We talk with Andy Cohen about his diaries, why we're all so obsessed with celebrity, and sneak a little chat about Oprah in there as well. (laughs) First of all, it's my – people have said to me, would you ever do a reality show? And I say, no, these books are my version of a reality (laughs) show because I'm telling you what I'm doing every single day. And – uh, I, I mean, the good news for me is I'm in control of the final edit. None of the housewives or no one on any reality show gets yeah. to control the edit, which much to their chagrin. Yeah. And that's why reality shows are so successful because <laughs> the stars don't control the edit. But um, I did and this still works, I think, because I I know that I have to go there for the reader. And I did go there in a way I probably became more introspective than I've ever been. I do think it's worth noting, you know, you talk about how your inspiration is the Andy Warhol Diaries. Yeah. But like those were published after he died. Well, know? that's a really important point. Yeah, I uh, think so. and, you know, and because also he said exactly what he thought of everybody in right. this book because he didn't plan on publishing it. Now I go halfway and I I say what I think about people that I am just deciding, I guess, okay, well, I guess this person is never going to do my show because <laughs> I'm just gonna say X or Y or Z. And so uh, it was it was also liberating, but I think it's it's look. I have a late night talk show that I need to book or needs to get booked, and so you know some people may not want to do it anymore because of the book. And you know I'm going to be okay. 
I think that when you're saying things, though, you're saying things with some knowledge of what you're talking about, yes. right? Yeah, so, no, 100%. You know. And I think that I'm the kind of butt of every joke in the book, bar- <laughs> you know, mainly, mainly. So since this is your third book, Two Diaries and then One Book of Stories, you're now also getting a little more involved in publishing itself, right? Yes. So tell I have us my, a little about well, that. Well, I have my own imprint, Andy Cohen Books. It's going to be nonfiction books, both memoirs and oral histories and tell-alls and anything that I'm interested in. And it's – I'm really excited about it. It seems like it's a similar move to when you started the, the serious station where you're like, yeah. these are people who I think could – be interesting to hear from more yeah, that's and sort of exactly anointing right. a few other people yeah. sort of in your world to give them either radio shows or maybe yep. help them get book deals. That's right. You're sort of bringing people along with you. That is right. People that I love who, uh, I, yeah, that's it. That's you a cool it. position to be in. It's kind it of an is. Oprah-y thing to do, I you know? know? it is. It's like a little <laughs> mini Jewy gay Oprah. Yeah. How often are you compared to Oprah in your never, daily life? Never. As well, fact. good. I'm glad we could yeah. do that. There's a moment in the book where I get invited to be on Where Are They Now? Oprah's Where Are They Now? And I'm like, where am I now? Where was I? Like, <laughs> what, what, call me in five years when I'm nobody and you can find oh. out where I am. But now I arguably am, am having the only moment that I'm going to have. So, yeah, I didn't do it. Well, you know, I think that is a nice sort of attitude to have in terms of like living every day to its fullest anyway, yes. right? Because it's sort of like if this is all I got, let's do this. Yes, you know, yes. like why not just go all in? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of awesome. Yeah. I think so. One thing I love about the book and find really interesting is, I mean, even in the first paragraph, you name drop, you know, oh, like six super yeah. famous people. <laughs> no, right? it's, it's like, it's, oh, it's, my God. It's essential. And I almost called the first one Diary of a Name Dropper. But it's <laughs> the point of the book. And it's called superficial, by the way, for a reason, right, because right. it is very superficial. And it's meant to reflect a moment in pop culture as I intersect with that moment. So, yes, I think it, I name names throughout the book. And I think that's interesting. One thing that I always loved about the Warhol Diaries, he'll talk about a party and he'll say who was there. And to me, it's just fun to even fantasize about that group of people being at a party on that. Wow. Like, the how, how did that group get together? Yeah. So. So I wonder, why do you think we're so obsessed with famous people? Well, I think they're fun to judge. People love judging other people, which is a big su- part of the success of the housewives. Actually, people judge. To me, it's all about sociology and human behavior and people love to judge. It's not, it, you know, people love to judge how not to behave and how to behave and see it all go awry. And I think with celebrities, you think you know them. You have a thirst to know more. They're typically um, either they're so gross that you hate them, but you want to actively hate them (laughs) and find out more about other people who hate them. So I I think there's a big play along at home factor with celebrities. I do think that the idea of seeing what to do and what not to do is interesting because I think people take very different lessons from the behavior they see. Yeah, I think they do too. And I think that the if the Housewives is all bad behavior and only bad behavior, I don't think it would still be as huge as it is now. I think there have to be – first of all, there's a ton of humor in that show uh, in every one of them. And they also – they each have – redeemable moments and they're called to task for you know when I get them together for the reunion that's when it's like their day of reckoning and (laughs) they're that's when they have to kind of own their stuff and if they don't for a continued amount of time they probably will wind up getting fired because the viewers won't go on their kind of 
journey with them. So we have a question for you since this book really encapsulates this moment in time and like you said, in all the ways you've intersected with pop culture yeah. over the last year or so, it's really comes to life in this book. But we were wondering, what would be the three people who you think have maybe had interesting years, whose diary you would like to read if you could? Assuming they kept one in your style, where they really tell you day by day right. what's going on. Whose uh, diary do you want to read from the last year? Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, well, I mean, you know, we I think we all want to read Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton you know, for di- for wildly different reasons, of course. Uh, I think – I mean, I would love to read the real Hillary Clinton, wouldn't you? Like what she was really thinking and what – I mean, that would be incredible. They're both nodding, listeners. <laughs> uh, they agree with me. Uh, yeah, I think those are two – Radio politeness. Those two, are two good ones. Those yeah, those two, two if they actually wrote what they were really thinking every exactly. day, that would be for, fascinating. It would be super year. fascinating. Yeah. I think – I mean, by the way, another one, and he couldn't do it the way you would need to do it. I mean, Anderson, who mm. is – you know, he's someone who lives a life like me. He travels a lot. He, he meets a lot of people and he's got strong, interesting opinions and I think that's – that's. I, I mean, I love journalism and journalists, so I always love to hear what they're uh, really thinking. You're talking about Anderson Cooper, yes, but you can just exactly. call him Anderson because right. he's your BFF. That's right. That is right. <laughs> Who else would I like to – I mean I mean the ravings of a lunatic like Kanye or something like that. I mean that could be interesting just because he's such a lunatic. Although on the flip side, yeah, I don't think he would say anything that would really surprise us because – yeah. I would, I would kind of like to hear the Beyonce if she really had deep thoughts that I, – I, I don't know what's going on in there. It's either everything or the opposite. Isn't that fascinating? I, can't I feel decide. like that's yeah. I feel like yeah. There are a lot of people who I look at and I'm like, what is happening? Right. What is it? <laughs> that's I think, funny. I think yeah. That I feel similarly about Kanye. That I feel like I don't get the sense that what he does publicly and what he tweets and what he says, you know, in his concerts is that different from what we might read. Right. There's but no Beyonce fun. is a mystery. Beyonce is a mystery. It's a mystery. People are good. Mysterious people are good. That's hilarious because we had talked about asking you this question ahead of time and we were like, I don't know if he's going to say Trump and Hillary or if he's going to say Kanye. So it's <laughs> Is that gonna, true? Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding? Nope. <laughs> wow. But then you said all of them and, well, you know, I it's know. like, there you go. It's the scope of humanity, wow, I, I guess. Can't believe, wow. <laughs> I think it's the people who were sort of the most intrigued by what you said before. What's happening behind the scenes, right, right behind the curtain, right. right off stage? I mean, that's the thing that you never see. And that's why I love this book. It's like you don't – people don't really do this. And I, I think it's probably for a reason. <laughs> or they wait till they're dead. But they what's the fun in that? Yeah, exactly. I want to I go on the book tour. It's fun. I'm in Chicago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Cohen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Andy's book is called Superficial. And check out his talk show on Bravo. Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. You are listening to Nerdette's year-end special. We're taking a look back at some of our favorite things from the year. And because Nerdette is a podcast, we thought we should talk about our favorite podcasts. Besides, of course, Nerdette. (laughs) Yes, besides Nerdette. Nerdette is number one. All of these other podcasts are great, too, though. 
Plenty of us have been listening to radio shows as podcasts like This American Life or Fresh Air or Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But there is a whole world of documentaries and conversations and audio fiction that you might not be listening to yet. So we're going to highlight just a few of them from the past year. Joining us to talk about what 2016 had to offer podcast fans are two podcast experts. From WAMU in Washington, D.C., we have Lauren Ober, the host of NPR's The Big Listen, which is a radio show about podcasts. Hey, Lauren. Hey, how are you guys? Great. Thanks for coming. And from Gimlet Studios in New York, we have Brittany Luce. She was the host of a fabulous podcast called Sampler, which helped listeners like me discover new podcasts. And she's working on a new show for Gimlet that we hopefully will hear more about soon. Brittany also hosts the great For Colored Nerds podcast, which I delight in every time I get to listen to it. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you. Thanks for having me, you guys. So, Brittany, let's start with you. I am super curious about this one you chose called Sleepover. What is it about? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sleepover is like has become my obsession. Um, it's this podcast that's hosted by Sukyun Lee, and it comes from the CBC, so it's Canadian. So, you know, it's full of warm fuzzies. <laughs> and basically what she does is every episode she finds three Canadians from all across the country, and each of them are different ages. There's usually some, there's always a child, someone in maybe their 20s or 30s, and then somebody maybe 50s or 60s. Um, and they each elect to sleep over with Sukyun in a hotel room overnight and like work out their personal problems together. So each person brings it like they bring a problem with them that they would like the group to help them solve. And they bring an object that represents that problem. And then they like bring it to the group and work things out overnight. There's tears, there's laughter. And and I think the thing that I like the most about it is that like there is intergenerational exchange. That's the Mm. thing that I like the most. We actually have a little clip from an episode of Sleepover, and this involves a young boy talking through his girl problems with a group of strangers. Let's take a listen. So how are your feelings today towards her? Mostly just sadness. Love really is just brain stuff, but when you get the feeling of love, it can be expressed through science, but just true love just is inexplainable. Math understands me, and the girl doesn't. I really like the way you're explaining math and science. I guess love in some ways starts off maybe with the brain, where you like you think, hey, I like these things about this person, but at some point it becomes unexplainable. Scientists have defined love as just like fireworks in your brain going, Something's happening, something's happening, and mixing these weird chemicals and you feel weird, but I think maybe the people who said that don't really know what true love feels like, because that stuff is just unexplainable. Ty, how do you know so much about this? I just got a little bit of information that my brain was just like connecting the dots and making a bigger figure. So fascinating. So many feelings. Right? Yeah, I like this one a lot. It kind of reminds me, Ann Patchett is one of my favorite authors, and she says every one of her books kind of centers around that theme of a bunch of strangers kind of being trapped together and figuring things out. And Mm -hmm. this is such a beautiful example of that, but in real life. It's fascinating. The thing I like about it is that, like, no matter how grave or serious or big the problem can seem that somebody comes in with, just even, like, the act of just sharing, do you know what I'm saying? How mm-hmm. they're feeling and working through that with other people who don't necessarily know them that well. Like there's just something about that, that confessional element, them working together, them sharing their emotions. It never, I never leave an episode of Sleepover feeling sad. 
Lauren, what do you think of this one? Have you heard it? Yeah, I have. I think it's amazing because it's sort of format busting in that Mm. it is reality radio, right? It is like a reality television show for your ears. I mean, it's like it might as well be, you know, the real world in a podcast form, um, except much more thoughtful and much less trashy. It's not trashy at all, actually. (laughs) I think it's also neat that it's taking this intergenerational approach and giving respect to the youngest person's feelings and opinions too it's not adults lecturing to children it's kids being a part of a real conversation exactly so that's sleepover definitely something to listen to if you're not already so let's shift now from the very experiential and intimate to an investigative podcast that a lot of people have been talking about this year lauren tell us about in the dark Okay, so In the Dark is uh, an investigative podcast series from APM Reports, and they took a crime, um, a a disappearance of a child uh, that happened, you know, almost 30 years ago in Minnesota, and they, they dug into what happened and actually what went wrong. Let's listen to just a little clip to give people a taste of what In the Dark is like. On October 12th, 1989, a sixth grader named Jacob Wetterling made this recording as part of a school project. Ten days later, he was kidnapped while riding his bike on a country road in a small town in central Minnesota. It's a case that defied logic then and now. It is a crime that has both captivated and frustrated Minnesotans for the On the outskirts of his hometown of St. Joseph, a young boy's mysterious... It's the most feared type of abduction, one by a complete stranger. No ransom note, no contact. What happened to Jacob Wetterling? And they didn't find out who killed this boy until literally just recently this year while they were making the podcast episode. um, The person who was this person of interest actually confessed. Um, And so it kind of turned everything on a head for the producers. But I think what I learned about this is that that this crime gave us the um, the sex offender registry that we have today. And they, they sort of go into the hysteria around missing children in the 80s. And I mean, I was alive then. I remember like the milk carton kid situation right? and, yeah. and how everyone was like mm-hmm. stranger danger. All the kids are going to get taken. Like don't walk home from yeah. school by yourself and all of this stuff. When actually in reality, you know, the likelihood that you would ever, that children are kidnapped by a stranger is extremely low. But I, I appreciate the time time and care that went into this because I think that true crime is a genre of podcasting that is easy to do on its face, right? Because everyone saw serial happen and then they were like, oh, well, there's this unsolved crime in my community or like I know about this thing that happened. Like, let's dig into that. But there has to be a reason for doing that. And with uh, In the Dark, I think it was really to expose what happens when an investigation breaks down. Lauren, I think this is such an interesting one, too. Personally, I lived in Minnesota for a couple of years in the mid-90s. I was in elementary school. And so I remember that. 
And, you know, I remember the fear around it and the fact that it was this unknown story, but not knowing a whole lot about it because I was still a kid and you could tell that people were kind of keeping me from learning more about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was such a Minnesota story in so many ways. It's interesting now to to see how much of a national scope it had then and now what that the podcast is having now, too. Yeah, like this crime was known across Minnesota. And, and I, I think the podcast talks a lot about how, you know, it, parents took that to heart. The name of the podcast that Lauren's been telling us about is called In the Dark. Like all the shows we've been talking about today, you can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, more of the year's best podcasts with Lauren Ober from NPR's The Big Listen and Brittany Luce of Gimlet Media. You're listening to Nerdette on WBEZ Chicago. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to the Nerdette Year-End Special on WBEZ Chicago. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. We're back talking with Lauren Ober and Brittany Luce about the best podcasts of the year. So, Brittany, I want to I want to talk about another kind of darker pick that you had, which is terrible. Thanks for asking. Yes. Tell me about this show. This is this is haunting. Yeah. Um, so terrible. Thanks for asking is a show from American Public Media. It's hosted by Nora McInerney. Um And it's like, it's crazy because I remember when I first heard about this show, I couldn't believe that it didn't already exist Mm -hmm. because it's like, I don't know, I think everybody's been through a time that was like so difficult and also taxing that like, whether it was so personal or just complicated that it wouldn't even be worth it to explain it to somebody else. And, you know, when someone just asks like, how are you? You just go like, "Ah, I'm fine. But you wish that you could actually be like, I'm terrible. Everything (laughs) is terrible. Life is terrible. Like, you know, thanks for asking. And some background on Nora, she actually, um, she lost her husband a couple years ago to brain cancer. And she's like in the very first episode talking about how I guess she kind of got the idea for the show being a young widow because she thinks she was 31 when her husband died. So being a young widow and then not too long after he died, meeting somebody new and then introducing, you know, the child from her previous relationship to this new guy and then getting pregnant. It was just she had a lot of stuff going on and she describes it as sort of like an emotional stew of like happiness, of grief, of love and of elation and thinking about how we perform sadness or when we choose to perform sadness or happiness when we're going through difficult times. And on this show, Terrible Thanks for Asking, Nora just digs into those really difficult periods in people's lives and sort of like how they deal with living that in front of other people. Being in love brings you a certain measure of happiness. 
I think for most people, it's actually a lot of happiness, but I'm not most people. I'm a people who lost her husband, who wrote a book about it, who started a sort of tongue-in-cheek but actually very real Hot Young Widows Club, who spent almost a full year in complete shock and denial before realizing she was drowning in an ocean of anxiety, depression, and grief. Happiness, to me, was only acceptable in small increments. I could have a little at a time, just not too much. I never knew really what grief looked like. We're very, very good at hiding it, compartmentalizing it, experiencing it in private, mostly. You are, of course, allowed to actively grieve during a wake, a funeral, a burial. Perhaps you can keen over your husband's dead body, post a few sad status updates, write a blog post. But did you know that grief isn't just crying? That grief isn't just like a facial expression or a physical act? Did you know that a grieving person can do a lot of things like laugh and go to movies and grocery shop and raise a child all while bleeding to death internally? Well, now you know, so you won't be surprised when it happens to you. Whew, that is so beautiful and so intense. A clip from Terrible Thanks for Asking. Okay, Lauren, you have a podcast that talks about social justice that's a little more historical. Tell us about Making Gay History. Okay, so um, y'all know that, like, people don't really listen to oral histories, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. not something that we're doing on the weekends. We're not, like, going to the library (laughs) and dropping in on their oral history collection. I think we should. I think this podcast really makes a case for the importance, the value of oral histories. So there's this uh, man named Eric Marcus, and he wrote this book called Making Gay History. And he, in the 80s, had done a series of oral histories with um, leaders in the gay community, leaders in in sort of gay rights and human rights, um, but also regular people, right? And, you know, for me as a queer person, hearing these voices that we tend to sort of forget the struggle, right? And this, this episode that really moved me was with a man named Wendell Sayers, who was a black man um, growing up in the 40s and 50s. And he was different, right? His parents knew it. And so they ended up taking him to the Mayo Clinic to find out what was wrong with him. But on the way, because they were African-American, they were not able to stay in any sort of accommodations. And so the parents camped out and ate like tinned food so that they could take their son to the Mayo Clinic to get him diagnosed as a homosexual, and, and which is exactly what happened. And, you know, the doctors there said, you know, we could we could put you in jail for this. Um, but because you happen to be a patient, there's, you know, confidentiality and we're not going to do that. It leads to the most remarkable exchange. Um, you know, the amazing thing was that he knew that he had love and support from his family, which was practically unheard of. My dad was very understanding. I say understanding, I don't think he actually understood, but he was willing to accept, I should say. Mm -hmm. So he finally told me, he says, well, since they don't know what to do about it, find you a friend that you can trust and bring him home. 
is I don't want you playing around on the streets or out on the country roads because you never know who's going to step up behind you or slip up on you. Bring them home. What you do in your room is your business because they didn't want me out on the street. That helped me a lot. At least I was loved by my father. And of course, mother, she just idolized me regardless. Man, that is incredible tape. That's just, yeah, that's really, really touching. Mm -hmm. So that show is Making Gay History, very unique conversations and, and insights from people there. Lauren and Brittany, we also wanted to just ask each of you for sort of a fun wild card pick for this best podcast of 2016 conversation, something that you just kind of got a kick out of this year. Maybe you don't think it's the greatest podcast ever made, but you really enjoyed it when it was in your ears. So, Brittany, you first. What's your wild card pick for 2016? Okay, my wild card pick is the Vogue podcast from Vogue magazine. Um, <laughs> it's hosted by Andre Leon Talley. It's weird to have a, a fashion podcast because fashion is something you experience visually. Mm. Um, but he has such a great personality. I, I think the other thing I like about him is he takes his his like interview subjects very very seriously um, and he's really invested in their story so it could be they could be talking about you know something that seems really trivial but he knows it's important to them and one of my favorite moments from the Vogue podcast series is when he interviewed Lee Daniels who is the creator of Empire and director of The Butler and, you know, a ton of other films. And they seem like they're good friends or something like that, but they had just had this amazing report that I found to be completely enjoyable. So, Lee, tell me how important are the moments of fashion in Empire? Of course, well, Miss Cookie. Miss Cookie is a major fashion girl. Yes. I mean, you, she was wearing last season's Gucci yes. in the first episode. As you point out. But how <laughs> important is fashion in the Empire? Fashion is everything in Empire. And I was telling to, I ran into um, several um, people at Vogue, um, and I wanted everyone to know that, you know, what defines ghetto fabulous is it's... it's we did this thing for Vogue recently where it was a uh, it was really really important and Taraji and yes. myself and Terrence we watched it all together uh, on set and it was um it was epic because you see we've never as African Americans felt embraced by Vogue and so and so when you when you when you and yet for each of us we cut the pages from the Vogue walls. In, and put a bit in on the, our walls, yeah. Projects yes. and stuff. Growing up, each of yes. us have that, that, yes. that sort of fan, fantasy experience. Yes. So for us to jump on the page, it was, a, it was a magical moment. And it really is what Empire is about. Fashion is a very big part of Empire. Yes, and so, yes, yes. because to be, you can still be broke <laughs> and have a sense of style. So that is Vogue podcast, Brittany's wild card pick. Lauren, what about you? What's your wild card? Okay, my wild card is a little podcast called Leave a Message After the Tone. At the moment, there are only four episodes, but the conceit is that they pose a question and then they have listeners, probably mostly like friends, but listeners call in with a response, right? And so one of the questions was, 
what do you think Drake's bedtime routine is? And then everybody <laughs> sort of sort of gives their thoughts on what Drake's bedtime routine may entail. And then they string <laughs> all of these responses together into this little narrative. It's like perfectly compact. And the results, I think, are like you get a lot of bang for your buck in this one. I think he starts getting ready for bed, like, mentally during dinner. He'll be out, and he'll be just, you know, getting into the headspace. Maybe he even uses Headspace, the app, but he'll be getting into that mindset of total relaxation. So, I think Drake has a pretty regular uh, bed routine. So the first thing he does is brush his teeth and then puts in his night guard, um, because he grinds his teeth at night. I feel like there's probably a lot of different lotions that he uses and weird, like, special nightwear, weird, like, velour polo nightgowns that he wears. Velour polo nightgowns (laughs) for Drake. I think that that sounds about right. I also imagine hot cocoa. (laughs) I just love the lotions, like, the idea of, like, Drake just, just getting super, like, lubed up before he goes to bed just to preserve that perfect skin, you know? I love it. I love it. It's so good. Brittany, do you have any thoughts on this podcast or Drake's bedtime routine? <laughs> I do. I, I I I have to say, I think all the all the responses were spot on. I haven't heard this show before, but I mean, it sounds fantastic. And also, like, I mean, just to be clear, like Drake is one hundred percent somebody who does not like having dry skin. You can just tell. You know what I'm saying? You can just tell he's the type. Absolutely not. Yeah, he probably has like a three hour bedtime routine. You know. <laughs> All right, Brittany and Lauren, before we let you go, is there one thing that you're hoping that you can hear in 2017, a a type of podcast that you would like to hear more of, a a group of people you would like to hear more from in the podcasting world? What would you like to hear in 2017? Brittany, you first. Um, I would like... See, this is the thing. So, like, there's lots of... Basically, I always want to hear more podcasts from marginalized people. So, like, you know... Women, people of color, LGBTQ people, disabled people. But like people are actually out there making these shows. The thing that I desire the most is that like, you know, whether it's like through a combination of, you know, programming like yours, Lauren, like the Big Listen, or also through like changes in discovery technology for podcasts. I just want like more of these shows to get to more people's ears. So to me, the shows are already being made. I just want more of them to like get out there. And specifically, I will say I would like to hear more shows from teenagers. I'm mm. very, very curious right now to hear from teenagers about how they feel about how our world is shaping up. Me too. That's See, great. I'm terrified of teenagers, so I, <laughs> I might not listen to that. Like, I appreciate that, but I'm scared of them, so uh, I might pass on those. Reasonable. <laughs> no, All right, but Lauren, I think... <laughs> if not teenagers, then what? <laughs> The elderly. Uh, no, no, I actually I actually do. I have thought about that a lot uh, about, you know, the sort of the age uh, of the folks who are making podcasts. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. mind, you know, like people, my mom's demographic, you know, like, mm. d- d- you know, making making some stuff. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll have a workshop for the olds um, and we'll just get together and, you know, create podcasts. <laughs> no, I think what I would like to see is is fewer panels fewer shows with people she says on a panel says on a panel <laughs> i fully realize that i would like to see fewer shows that are white men talking at and for and with white men 
Like I might be good with that. I might be like fair enough. Is that is that terrible to say? I don't know if you're going to get your wish, but <laughs> <laughs> good luck. <laughs> well, and I think my my 2017 New Year's resolution for podcasts is to try to just keep finding new shows to listen to because it can become really easy because there's so many great shows out there right now to fill up your phone or your your computer with you know enough shows that you can't really listen to them all. So it can mm. be easy to feel like you're not caught up on your favorites and not seek out new things. But one of the reasons we had you on, Brittany and Lauren, is that you are such connoisseurs of this medium. <laughs> and so we're going to keep checking in with you about what the great stuff is that's happening in podcasting because I think we should all be listening to new things even if we feel like our queue is very full. <laughs> I like that resolution. Lauren Ober and Brittany Luce, thank you so much for talking with us. This was super fun. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. In a minute, we'll talk with the author of a true story about the group of black women whose math skills helped get the first American into space. You're listening to Nerdette on WBEZ Chicago. If you were a white male, would you wish to be an engineer? I wouldn't have to. I'd already be one. Yes, it's an uphill battle. I'm Greta Johnson, here with Trisha Bobita. This is Nerdette, and that was a clip from the new movie Hidden Figures, about a group of Black women who worked as mathematicians in the early days of NASA. It stars Taraji P. Henson from the TV show Empire, the Oscar-winning actress Octavia Spencer, and the musician Janelle Monet. Hidden Figures is based on a book by Margot Lee Shetterly. And because here at Nerdette, science, space, and great ladies of history are near and dear to our hearts— we wanted to have her on the show as soon as we heard about this book. Margot Lee Shetterly, welcome to Nerdette. We are super excited to have you. Thank you. I'm psyched to be here. So for people who aren't familiar yet, maybe haven't seen the trailer, haven't heard like the low hum about hidden figures that I feel like we've been sort of immersed in for the past couple months, tell us what we're working with here. Okay. So first of all, hidden figures is a true story. A lot of people say, oh, my God, it's a novel. It's fiction. No, no, You no. made up such a great story. You made up a great story. I didn't make up anything. It's all true. <laughs> um, Hidden Figures is a story of a group of African-American women who, starting in World War II, go to work as professional mathematicians at something called the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, where I grew up, uh, which is the kernel of what would become NASA. Very exciting. So um, the book follows them from the period during World War II through the moon landing and really looking at their lives tries to address issues of uh, gender and race and, you know, all of the great sweeps of what we call the American century. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the 40s through into, you know, even the late 70s and the space age. I feel like you did such a great job of taking not only these women's lives, but putting in them in the perspective of what's happening, not only with the civil rights era, but how we're interacting with other countries around the world. Like, there's just so much scope to this book. Yeah, it was really, for me, it was really exciting to sort of start this research with, um these women that I grew up with and, you know, that my dad had worked with and that my mom was, they were in the same sorority, you know, these neighbors. And to really kind of peel this onion back to figure out where they started and how they got there 
and then to see just how much their lives connected with these huge events from the Brown versus Board of Education decision to the, you know, Americans landing on the moon, all of these great things that happen that people, everyone kind of knows about that happened in the 20th century, these women's lives connected to it. So it was just this extremely exciting journey, this time machine, you know, that I got to to step into and travel back in. How long did it take for you growing up in that town to realize that this was unique? Did it seem normal to you that everybody was an aerospace engineer and, you know, meeting people in the grocery store, you just expected them to to be folks who were kind of of that world? Was it a company town feel or did it take longer, you know, once you'd left home for you to think this was a really special, unique sort of environment and moment? You know, the thing about Hampton, Virginia, is that it was a real defense industry community. So a lot of people did technical jobs, you know, working for the the military, the military industrial complex. But, you know, there were like teachers and doctors and, you know, so it was sort of like what you probably would call middle America and seemed totally normal. It's just that for me, an unusual proportion of the people that I knew because of my dad working at NASA also worked at NASA and also happened to be black. And so it it seemed normal. And um, it really isn't much of an exaggeration to say that it took until that point when I started writing the book to to truly, I think, appreciate how unusual a a community that was. You'd been doing magazine writing. So you had been doing a lot of research to tell big stories before. But this is your first book, right? So this is the first time you had to, you know, not just do the the three or 5,000 word maybe version of something, but you had the opportunity and the challenge. You know, how do you track these people down and how do you gain their trust to tell their story and, and all that? How How did that work for you, meeting the actual, you know, living people or their children who had been doing this work and, and figuring out how to take care of their stories? That is a really good question. I mean, I think that it's one thing if you're writing a book about yourself and your life and even your family, but having, you know, really immersing yourself in the details of someone else's life um, is a lot of responsibility, you know, because you want to be as objective as possible in terms of the history and and representing what actually happened. But you really also want to be true to their perspective and to their point of view and to the circumstances of their life. So um, it, that was that was hard. I think that was one of the hardest parts of the book and um, doing justice both to the people who are living, like Katherine Johnson, who, who was here and can represent still her own story and her history, um, but really trusting that I had read enough and and spoken enough with relatives and seen enough documents of the women who are not still alive to know that I had also represented them honestly and fairly and completely. And so it, I would say it was probably three years of real research before I even felt comfortable enough to start writing. Like it was just sort of like what happened and then what happened and what were they doing in, you know, 1947 in that building at Langley? You know, there was so much that I didn't know and wanted to recreate accurately and then set this whole scene and then put the characters in the scene and then just watch them as if I were watching the history take place. 
I didn't want to have the perspective of the person from 2016. You know, I really wanted to look at it as if I were there in 1947 or 1958 or 1975 or whenever it was happening. I'm Trisha Bobita of Nerd Up Podcast, here with my co-host Greta Johnson and the author of Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shetterly. Hidden Figures is the true story of the black women who did the math that got the first American men into space. I think your proximity to the story is so interesting because I feel like in that sense it almost becomes a part of your DNA and then maybe you don't ask the questions that you would have if you didn't learn about this until you were in your mid-30s. You know, just that idea of like assuming that that was always the way it was as opposed to really questioning like, wait a second, how did this actually come to be? That must have been such a fascinating process. It really was because I grew up with this this one version of Hampton, Virginia, which was integrated in which, you know, there were women there working at, at NASA in which I was going to go off to college and basically felt like I'd go to college wherever I wanted to. You know, there, all, there was a whole set of things that I took for granted. And um, and even though even knowing the history and knowing the segregation, knowing the the challenges that women faced, um, knowing that there was a time when going to the moon was just this unbelievable thing, you know, (laughs) and not even that. But like it was so interesting to learn about airplane science in this book, too. And the idea (laughs) that it was really like no one knew, which is so funny to think about now because we've got it all figured out. You know, it was amazing. I mean, I loved the space part, but I was absolutely transfixed by the airplanes, you know, and so like every time I get an airplane, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at it, (laughs) looking at the wings, looking at the tail. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that technical note number, you know, 738 or whatever. You mentioned looking at the actual equations. And it makes me wonder what your relationship with math itself is. And I mean, I think I just saw a stat recently that graduate studies in mathematics are still the most gender stratified of any of the sciences, any of the STEM fields. I think it said that 13% of uh, people doing graduate work in mathematics are women, Wow, which is just, I mean, it's 2016, and it's that divided. And here are these women who decades, decades and decades before now are not only doing the math, but doing it with the confidence to say, yeah, put that guy in that machine and send him off because I think I did the math well enough to know that he can come back alive. Exactly. So I'd always taken a lot of math and science. So my my dad is a now retired research scientist, and my mom is an English professor. So I took all this stuff, you know, and um, went to the spelling bee and the science fair project. For some reason, math really does get a bad rap. And it's sort of seen as this thing that's really hard and, and boring and painful and not creative. When, in fact, there's a tremendous amount of creativity and beauty to it um, that I think even if people are not technically proficient at math, they might still be interested in it the same way that you can be interested in beautiful music, even if you can't play music. So I don't know. Math math needs some rebranding, I guess. (laughs) I think, too, there's such a stratification between like, oh, you're a writer, so you don't have to know math. You know, that idea that you can't integrate math and science into your education as you would reading books if that's what you chose to do, you know? Yeah, it's it's there's so much there. There's so much that is fascinating. And there's so much that really does, I found, particularly in the research to this book, like kind of spoke to me just as somebody that was 
as being interested in in ideas and interested in concepts and beautiful concepts and I found that I didn't have to understand the finest of the details of what these women might have been writing about to really appreciate the intrinsic sort of mathematical beauty of some of the things and the creativity and the just the cool factor. You know, like this stuff was cool. This was really interesting center of the universe kind of work that they were doing. And, you know, when I talked to them and interviewed them, that was always very clear that they loved these jobs. But it seems like from the book that sometimes they didn't, maybe out of being humble or or just like you said, being surrounded by other women who were doing this work, they didn't always own up to how extraordinary they were. Was having them go back and, and reflect on this, you think, changing how they viewed that work, you know, decades later to say, do you realize what you did? <laughs> just to Just to kind of be able to bring them a fresh set of eyes to their own story. Did that change? And do you think the movie will change how they see their role in history? I think so. But, you know, I think it it takes time. History is something that takes time. And you get distance from it. And, you know, you kind of see it in the context of all these other things. And for them, they were going to work every day. They were also, they had families, they had other interests. And so, this work that they did at NASA was part of their identities and part of their life, but it wasn't the complete thing to their life. So I think a lot of times it, it takes distance and it takes other people looking at something to say, wow, you know, that really was exceptional. Like that was totally extraordinary. And so we're starting to look at this work that we for a long time kind of considered to be unremarkable and subprofessional and not as important as the big, brawny engineering work. We're revaluing that. Like, we have enough distance, I think, to see it in a way that wasn't possible either for the women or for the people around them to see it in the time period. One of my favorite parts of the book is from one of the lady mathematicians. It's an anecdote about how she was interviewed by a local newspaper, by a female reporter there also. And she asked this woman... Do you find it accurate that to be a woman working with men, you have to think like a man, work like a dog, and act like a lady? And she absolutely agreed. And then the next paragraph, you go on to talk about how, like, the thing that's the biggest pain in the ass out of those three things is acting like a lady, which I just thought was so delightful and perfect for this book. Even though these stories took place in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, and even as we acknowledge the progress that we've made, because there has been tremendous progress, you still look at those things and you say, well, geez, you know, well, that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> and and um, it was it was it really having worked in workplaces where I was perhaps one of few women, the only black woman, you know, whatever it is. And trying to negotiate those identities and trying to figure out, well, what is the balance between being assertive and aggressive and pushy? And, you know, is it better to be nice or is it better to be ferocious? You know, I mean, trying to figure out all of those things in the workplace and looking at these women from decades ago doing the same thing, um, it, it, it was it was. It was both informative and interesting, and I, I loved anecdotes like that because it just totally rang true now as much as then. 
I'm Trisha Bobita here with my co-host Greta Johnson of Nerd Up Podcast and our guest, author Margot Lee Shetterly. Shetterly's book Hidden Figures is now a film by the same name. It tells the true story of black women mathematicians in the early days of NASA who did the math that rocketed Americans to space. What's it been like to see this story that you diligently researched now being brought to life in a very different medium? There's going to be this film version, which, of course, you know, uh, years and years of research can't can't even all fit into a book, as you said. You probably had to do a lot of culling there. But then a movie is going to be a very different approach to telling this story. But I wonder what that process has been like for you and, and what you're looking forward to about, you know, another way for people to get to know these women will be. It has been like the only experience I've ever had with anything like this. Because <laughs> given that it's, I mean, this is my first book and it is being turned into a movie. And those two things are happening almost simultaneously, it's sort of like an all bets are off situation. (laughs) You know, like everything that has happened with this story has been like the most unusual thing that has ever happened to me. And so, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it must, were they optioned at the same time? Like, how did that work? They, they optioned the movie. My book proposal was optioned. So basically only almost right after the proposal sold to a publisher, a woman named Donna Gelati, who is a very well-respected, amazing Hollywood producer who did Silver Linings Playbook, and she did Shakespeare in Love. Um, and <laughs> no who big is, deal. No big deal, right? <laughs> um, who likes protagonists, strong female protagonists, you know, as you would imagine that a strong female protagonist in real life is interested in those kinds of mm-hmm. people. And um, my um, my literary agent got this proposal in her hands, and she loved it. You know, she had a vision for the story and for these women and for telling this story and for, you know, I think even beyond making a good entertaining movie, which obviously, you know, that's what the movies are for. They have to be good and entertaining or else people don't go to see them. Um, But was also sensitive to the power of seeing a little black girl on film factoring quadratic equations and how like how revolutionary that is, you know, truly revolutionary. So it's been this great experience. I mean, terrifying in some ways um, to have this story that I was still kind of bringing to life at the same time, the movie and this very different (laughs) medium that I don't know anything about. You know, I know a little bit more about it now was coming to life. But, um, you know, the truth is a lot of people read books and a lot more people see movies. And, um, you know, I hope that a lot of people who go to see the movie will be interested in the book, which is an expanded, you know, full history from, you know, from the 1940s to the 1960s. But I think that the power of film and seeing people on screen and seeing them larger than life and being in this dark room and hearing it and, you know, that really shapes perceptions in a very short period of time and across a lot of people. So I, I just, I'm just really thrilled that these women are getting the platform that I think they really deserve. I think you're right, too, that the prize in some ways is that 11 or 12-year-old in the movie audience who maybe isn't going to pick that book up on their own. Maybe they get dragged to the movie with their mother or father who's read the book and they say, no, listen, you're going to like this. And they sit down and like you said, on on that big glowing screen, see some examples of role models, real people who had to, you know, brush off their shoulders every time somebody said, you aren't 
someone who does math. Girls don't do math, right? You know, or why do you want to go to the meeting? You're a girl. Like, yeah, why would yeah. girls you be interested in the meetings? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't let girls in the meeting. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I think that that's that's the thing. Like, it's sort of seeing that somebody else did these things and that they were normal people. I think that's really one of the things about this story. These women were extraordinary, but they were also ordinary. Like they did not go to the mountain and sit on the mountaintop and have a life away from the rest of us. You know, Um, hopefully people will see that, that young people will see them and say, well, I could do that too. That's, That's not such a reach. I think, too, the idea that Victory is getting invited to the meeting, you know, is just like asking enough times that you are let into that room. Like, I the think so. The room where it happens. Exactly. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think that was so that was one of my that was like my soundtrack for writing this. Was it? I honestly I think I listened to a Hamilton soundtrack to the exclusion of everything else for about three months. I was as wondering. As my husband when will you tell it. you. <laughs> I, I am I am with you on listening to it that many times. And I do think that the people who we make statues of and who we consider founders of things, we often only tell their stories as if they were this tunnel vision person. Sometimes they were, right? Alexander Hamilton had a, a bunch of children, but it doesn't seem like he had much to do with them, right? Like he wrote all the time and he worked all the time. But then you have these women who, as you said, were doing extraordinary math so that we could go to space. But then they also were teaching Sunday school or they were, you know, they were also at church on Sunday morning or they were, you know, making a home and raising a family and and being a part of a community. And and like you said, seeing that, of course, women have to do both those things. (laughs) They do. Men can be geniuses who everyone takes care of everything for them. That's the the narrative we give to genius, right? Yeah. Is that it's okay to forget to wear your pants if you're Albert Einstein because you're Albert Einstein, that absent-minded professor. But women with that same intellectual rigor also have to get other done. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, and that's what these women did, you know, they, they managed and sometimes I don't know how they did like Dorothy Vaughn had six children. You know, that sounds like too much to handle no matter what your other day job is. Exactly. And somehow <laughs> she did it. I mean, she did it. She managed. I mean, she more than managed. She was very good at her job. And she was a great mother who raised successful children who all went to college who then had children who became successful and a, a lot of a lot of these women who worked also balanced these other aspects of their lives and you know it wasn't always easy but they they did not do science the exclusion of of everything else as if that would have been an option i mean it would not have been an option for them Margot Lee Shetterly, thank you so much for coming on Nerdette. Thank you. I loved being here. That does it for Nerdette's year-end special. If you're not already a listener, we want you to make a resolution to start listening to Nerdette in 2017. If you are so obliged, go to nerdettepodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Nerdette Podcast. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault and Justin Bull. Our intern is Annie Nguyen. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Thanks for listening to Nerdette on WBEC. See you next year. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.